0: Couldn't imagine actually a better song to lead into what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, We're looking at the Lord's Prayer this semester, and tonight uh, we're we're kind of getting near the end. Uh, We're looking at the last line uh, of the Lord's Prayer, really sort of the first bit of the last line. uh, Lead us not into temptation, and then it follows, uh, but deliver us from evil. Uh, What does that mean? Uh, Lead us not into temptation. Does it mean that God is tempting us to sin or that He wants to tempt us to sin and we've got to ask Him to stop? Uh, Is that what's meant uh, when we pray this prayer? Uh, No, uh, it's not as uh, Jesus' own brother would write. He says, Let no one say when He's tempted, I'm being tempted uh, by God, for God tempts no one. Uh, But each person is tempted when He is lured and enticed by His own desire. Just at the outset, God never tempts us to sin. But he does allow us to be tested, and those aren't the same thing. There's a distinction, right? Testing and tempting are not the same. When a professor gives you an exam, gives you a test, he's not leading you to cheat. Um, And that desire to cheat might come from someplace else or from someone else, but it's not necessarily inherent in the test itself. With that in mind, let's look at our passage for tonight. Uh, Let's see if we can't make a little bit more sense. Uh, out of, a admittedly, uh, a difficult verse. Uh, the passage that we're going to look at tonight comes from Genesis 2, uh, Genesis chapter 2, first book in the Old Testament, uh, which is the first book in the Bible. You can follow along uh, here on the screen uh, on an app if you have a Bible app. We also have some free Bibles on the table uh, for you. so will give to you, and be our guest and take one. But it starts this way in, in verses 2-8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit in the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, unless you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Father, thanks for bringing us together uh, again on a Wednesday night, uh, that we would be able to encounter you and, and enjoy each other's fellowship. Uh, I pray as we turn our attention to your word, you'd help us to hear what it is you want to say to us tonight, uh, that we would see what needs to be seen, uh, that you would open our hearts even to receive and to believe. Uh, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there are three things I really want you to see from this text tonight. Uh, the first is, who does tempting? Secondly, how does he tempt? And then thirdly, how might God answer this prayer, lead us not into temptation? How does he lead us, God protects us, in what I'm going to call the midst of a minefield? So those are really the three points. Who tempts us? How does he tempt us? And how is God going to lead us, God protect us, in the midst of a minefield? Um, The first thing I want you to see is that God tests us, but the devil is the one who tempts us. God tests us, but the devil tempts us. A story begins in Genesis 2, um, second chapter in the Bible. Uh, In the chapter right before it, Genesis 1, we learn that the universe is not an accident, that we're not here by chance. Uh, We are, in fact, uh, a work of art. Uh, God's the creator, and we are his creation. And he delights in it, and he delights in us. He calls us good. That's on page one. Page two, Genesis, or actually still on page one, um, and still in Genesis one, we learn that we human beings, men and women, are made in God's image. A human being is a creature uh, created on the sixth day. It's a land animal, uh, not unlike other land animals, but we've been made to know God And we've been made to show God. You could say that we are endowed with special gifts and endowed with a special relationship so that we can make visible the invisible God. That is what it means to be a human being. I like how the Jesus Storybook Bible summarizes this part of the story. Uh, Those two are also for free on the table over there. If you don't have one, they're great. But beholding Adam and Eve for the very first time, God felt like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. And God loved them with all of his heart. And they were lovely because he loved them. This is how Genesis 1 ends. And really how Genesis 2 begins. Because God loved Adam and Eve, he gave them breath, he gave them life, and he gave them everything that they needed to survive. We see this in our text. He plants a garden... Uh, that's full of trees, beautiful to look at, and also good for food. And then he puts Adam and Eve in the midst of the garden, and he says that they can eat from any and all of the trees in the garden, except for one. Why would he do that? Why all but one? Well, I submit to you tonight that it's because God loves them, and he wants them to love him uh, in return. Remember, right, Adam and Eve and all of us here are made in God's image. And since God is love and loving, he wants us to be loving too. Now, in order for there to be love, there needs to be free will. In order for us to freely and truly God, truly love God, we need to be able to choose. Uh, we need to be able to say yes to him or no to him. If God never gave us a choice or presented us with a choice to be able to say yes or no to him, just to say, if he just programmed us to say yes to him all the time, we wouldn't be free and we wouldn't be loving. We would be robots, sort of just saying yes, 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 yes to God. And God didn't want to create a world full of robots. He wanted to create a world full of image bearers, men and women who are freely able to say yes to him or no to him, right? To love him uh, in return. And in order for that to be true, in order for there to to be love, there needed to be choice. And there needed to be a condition like this, like the one that he sets up in the garden. You can eat anything in in the garden except for one tree. In some ways, say yes to me by saying no to this tree. Love me by abstaining from the fruit of this one thing. Frankly, God had given them everything that they could have. He's not asking for a gift. It was everything they had was his already. The one thing that Adam and Eve and the one thing that we could give uh, to him is the one thing that he doesn't have any control of, which really is our heart. It's our affections. That is ours to give. And he's asking for it. He's saying, love me. Say yes to me by saying no to the fruit of this tree. could call that a test, sure. Um, but more than anything, it's the presentation of a choice without which there would be no love. Next to the tree of life, there's this tree at the very heart of the garden because it lies at the very heart of this love relationship between God and Adam and Eve. And both of these trees are symbolic of this love relationship. Him giving them life and them being able to show love in return at the very heart of this garden. It's no coincidence then that this is where the serpent goes. It's no coincidence that he goes right for the heart, right to this tree, and hang out there. Right? He cynically and sadistically, exploits this situation. And he takes what was a very beautiful thing and he twists it into something that is ugly. I want you to see how he does that in point number two. I want you to see how the devil tempts Adam and Eve and in many ways how he does the same to us uh, to get us to turn our backs on God uh, and to do what's right in our own eyes. That's point number two, how the devil tempts us. We can look at the passage here now, starting at Genesis 3, uh, verse 1. It says there, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he, that's the serpent, which really is the devil in disguise, he says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Should stop right there for a moment. The devil is starting to tempt Adam and Eve. The way that he starts off is not by denying God's existence, being like, God doesn't really exist. He says, did God actually say? It might be a silly example, but if I wanted you to hate Leonardo's pizza and to stop eating it, uh, I wouldn't tell you that there's no such thing as Leonardo's pizza. You all could point right to those boxes over there and be like, I think you're mistaken, right? If I didn't want you, uh, if I wanted you to hate Leonardo's Pizza and to stop eating it, I would just need to tell you that Leo- Leonardo's is no good, that the people who work there are jerks, and that you would be way happier, more fulfilled if you ordered from someplace like Papa John's. Right? That's the kind of stuff I would do. Now, I don't believe that's true. I love Leonardo's. I'm glad that we get it every week. Um, but that's what. Uh, that's how we would go, right? We wouldn't, I wouldn't deny the existence of Leonardo's. I would sort of just try to convince you that it's not good. And that is in very much the same things uh, that the, the devil does here uh, in Genesis 3. Listen to what he says. Not does God exist, but did God actually say, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In other words, are you kidding me? <laughs> Like, God said that. God said that you can't eat of any tree in the garden. You know, that is so like him. He is such a jerk, right? He's such a control freak. That's kind of what the devil is doing in the first verse. Now, in actuality, that is not what God has said. God did not say, say that they can't eat of any tree in the garden. He said that they could eat of all of the trees in the garden. He could eat, they could eat from any and all except for one. And Eve says as much, right, in verse two. And at this point, we kind of want to give her a high five because she explains, no, God said that we can eat of all the trees in the garden. There's just one that we can't eat of. But then she does something, right? And that high five almost becomes like a hair grab, like, what are you saying? What are you doing? Because she adds this, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She says, No, we can't eat of any of, we can eat of all of the trees except for one, but there's one that we can't even touch because if we did, we would die. Now, God never said that. He never said that you can't touch this. What he did say is that you can't eat of it. But what this addition of Eve shows us is that what the devil is doing is working. Right? The poison of the serpent has in some ways entered into the bloodstream and has gone straight to her heart, right? The seeds of doubt, of distrust have been planted and they are taking root and they are growing quick. Maybe he is right. Maybe God isn't good. We can't even touch it, right? Lest we die. Does God love me, Eve wonders? Suddenly she doesn't know anymore. And as soon as that we are convinced of this, as soon as like the devil sort of gets this foothold that God isn't good, that he doesn't love us, that he doesn't want what's best for us, as soon as we are convinced of that, we are going to take matters into our own hands. As soon as we are convinced that God isn't good, he doesn't love me, he's not looking out for me, he doesn't have my interests at heart we're convinced of that, we will take matters into our own hand, and we will do what is right in our own eyes. Look at verses four and six. Serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, like God's a liar. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate as well. Now there is some irony in verse 5 that you should know. Uh, The devil is talking to someone who is already made in the image of God. But he is insinuating that she's not. Or that she's not good enough. He is suggesting to Eve, an image bearer, that she needs to do something more or to be something more. That she needs to eat, fruit for, or eat the fruit of this tree in order to be like God. And he also implies that this is something that God doesn't want. That he doesn't want her to be like him. God is holding you back. He's holding you down. Right, he doesn't want you to reach your full potential. That you've got to break up with him, and you need to listen to me. Here's my advice. You write the rules. You figure out what works for you, and then do it. Right? You do you. That's kind of the serpent's tack. You do you is what Eve does in verse 6. And then she does what we all do. She comes up with all sorts of defenses and excuses to rationalize her behavior. It looks good, tastes good, it's for my good. We might say, What's the big deal? It's just an appetite. Nobody's watching me. Nobody cares. Nobody's getting hurt. Everybody's doing it. It's just on the computer. It's just on the weekends. It's just in my room. We both said yes. She didn't say no. It's the 21st century. I need to do this to get ahead. This will help me advance my career. It's my life. We are experts at coming up with justifications and rationalizations for our self-centered, self-interested behavior. And not only that, we will then gladly encourage other people to do the same. Eve shares the fruit. After sort of eating of it, she says to her husband, you do too. And all this shows is that having been tempted, it's easy for us to tempt others. Right, Alleviates some of our guilt. It makes it easier for us to keep doing when we see other people doing just as we have done. Right, we could say misery loves company. Well, to summarize, right up to this point, God loves us and he wants us to love him freely. And because that's true, he gives us the ability to choose. Right, to say yes to him or to say no to him. And that may feel like a test, and sometimes it is. But he never, ever tempts us to sin. He is not trying to trip us up. He doesn't want us to fail. He wants us to love him. He wants us to image him. But the devil is at work. He wants to tempt us. He wants to see us mess up. He wants to see us fail. He wants to wound the Father's heart. And the way that he does that is by twisting God's words around And sowing seeds of doubt and distrust in our hearts so that we hate our father and we don't believe him, we don't trust him, we don't want nothing to do with him, that we would run far away from home and try to seek life, uh, to do life on our own terms, far away from home. That's what the devil wants us to do. He insinuates that God can't be trusted, that he doesn't love you, that he doesn't have your best interests at heart. If you and I believe that God was good, that he loved us, that he was for us, we would always do what he says. You would never ever sin. You would never just go and do things your own way. If you believe that God was good and he loved you and he knew what was best for you, like you'd always listen to him. If you believe that deep down inside, I mean, that's true of me too. But the truth is that we don't believe that. We doubt that. And all that's to say is that at the root of all of our temptations to sort of go it alone, to go without God, just to do things our own way, at the root of all of that really is doubt. It really is a lack of faith, it's a lack of trust. God isn't good. He doesn't love me, He doesn't want what's best for me, right? He cannot be trusted. So what would it take uh, to convince you otherwise? Like, what will it take to convince you that he is? He is good. He is loving. He is for you. I have become utterly convinced that there's only one thing, really only one person who will be able to do that. It's not me. It's Jesus. In order for you to be convinced in the inner self that God is good, he's loving, he's for you, you need to see Jesus. Jesus. And you need to listen to Jesus. And you need to rest in Jesus. That's the only thing that's going to be able to help you sort of navigate these temptations. In a a beautiful, now broken world, and this really is point three, how does God sort of lead us out? In a beautiful but broken world, planet Earth resembles more a minefield than it does a garden. The, The devil has shown up, and he has sown mine's, left and right and all around. And every single day we have an opportunity to step on one, to touch one, and to blow up our lives and to blow up the lives of those around us. Um, We need help navigating life that feels like a minefield. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation. What we're really asking for is God's leadership, His guidance, His protection. Lead us not into really means lead us over or lead us through, which may be the best maybe least confusing way to pray this petition right lead us through temptation how is God going to do that well first of all right by showing us Jesus Uh, as I just said uh not too long ago if you really believed that God was good that he loved you that he always had your best interests at heart you would listen to him right you would do what he says um the reason why you don't listen and the reason why you take matters into your own hands is because you don't believe these things. You doubt that he is good and you doubt that he's loving and you doubt that he's for you. And that really is why I want to introduce you to Jesus. That's why I want you to meet him. And that's why I want you to take a good long look at him. Because Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen God the Father. He says, whoever knows me knows my Father. Now, when he says this, he's not just claiming to be divine or God in the flesh, which he is, by the way. He's saying, if you want to know who God is and if you want to know what his heart is like, look at me. Pay attention to me. If you know who I am, you know who God is. God is good and he is loving. And Jesus proves this over and over and over again. A bridegroom poorly plans for his wedding, and he's about to be humiliated in front of his wife and his entire village. And you know what Jesus does? He turns 180 gallons of water, and he turns it into wine. And in so doing, he doesn't just turn this party around. (laughs) That's a lot of wine. He doesn't just turn this party around. He saves this guy's marriage, and in the end, he really saves his life saves him from humiliation. When Jesus encounters a sex addict like collecting water at the heat of day, he doesn't shame her. He doesn't scold her. He embraces her. And he tells her, my father's been looking for you. When Jesus encounters a crippled man at the pools of Bethsaida, he tells him to pick up his mat and to go home. Jesus is constantly healing the sick and opening the eyes of the blind. Lepers whom people despise. that they, These are people that no one would ever go near or touch. Jesus draws near to them, and he touches them, and he makes them clean. And time and again, when Jesus comes into contact with sinners whose lives are like the leper, just broken and dirty and messy and unclean, lives like yours and mine, you know what Jesus does? He breaks bread with us, and he feasts with us, and he doesn't just say, your sins are forgiven. He says, come and follow me. I want to be with you. And I want you where I am. Jesus is good, which is to say, God is good. Like, Jesus is loving, which is to say, God is loving. But you may ask, is he for me? Like, Is he for me? And the answer to that question is 100% absolutely yes. And you know how I can be so sure to, answer, to the answer to that question is because I see Jesus and I see him going to the cross. And on the cross, I see him take all of the punishment that our sins deserve. And he does that in our place. See, on the God, on the cross, God punishes sin to the max. He punishes all of our sin, all of our evil, all of our injustice. But instead of pouring that out on us, he says, pour it out on me. Right? He takes the hit so we don't have to. So, you want to know, is Jesus for me? Of course, He is. I was uh, talking to a student about this the other day. It's uh, like afternoon coffee. I mentioned to her that in college I was a wannabe Buddhist. I went to see you, Boulder. I was spiritual, not religious, like most people here. Uh, and when I graduated college, I loaded up a backpack and I spent time in India and Nepal and Southeast Asia and backpacking and visiting Hindu temples and Buddhist monasteries. Uh, And I came across many works of art depicting the Buddha. And you know how the Buddha is often depicted in art? He's always either sitting sort of cross-legged or lying on his side, but with a smile on his face. The Buddha sees the suffering of the world and he smiles. That's what he does. It stands in very sharp contrast to the God that we have in Jesus. Jesus. Because when our God, Jesus, looks at the suffering of the world, he doesn't smile. In some ways, he's like the coach he's like takes off his clothes and says, put on a jersey, like, give me the team jersey, I'm going to go into the field, and I'm going to fight with him. Not with, a, not with his teammates, but to fight for us, and to fight side by side with us. Like When I see Jesus, I see a God who like puts on a jersey and jumps into the fray, and then takes a beating so that we can emerge victorious. He does not smile. He suffers. He suffers with us, and he suffers for us. That's the kind of God we have. And that's the kind of God I want to worship. You need to see him, good and loving, and on a cross for you. But you also need to hear him. And I realized that in order to listen to him, you got to first see him. You got to first know that he's good and loving and for you. Otherwise, why bother? So come to RUF and let me introduce you to this Jesus who I think is really great. Um, This really is a place where you can belong before you believe, and you can ask hard questions, and you can take time getting to know this God that I love so very much. Um, But having seen him, if you become convinced that he's good and loving and for you, it's time to listen. You need to listen to him. You need to get God's words ringing in your ears and getting it inside of your heart. Because I realize that there's lots of noise out there. There are lots of people telling you to go this way and that. Now, some voices in your life are evil. they are often voices of guilt or shame, voices of the devil. Did God actually say, what a control freak? There are other voices that are well-intentioned but misleading. And then there are some voices that are good and loving and wise. The challenge for you is to figure out what stations you need to tune into and how to turn the good volume, the good stuff up and the bad stuff down. Right, how do you turn God's voice up in your life and how do you turn all the other, those other maybe distracting voices down? Might be helpful for you to know that Jesus faced trials and temptations too. Uh, as soon as he was baptized, he was led into the desert. And he fasted for 40 days and nights, and he was, by the end of it, he's tired, he's hungry, he's depleted, he's weak. And the same devil who tempts Adam and Eve comes up to Jesus and starts tempting him too. He starts saying, If you're the God's son, why don't you turn these stones into bread? If you're God's son, why don't you throw yourself off the temple? Let God's angels carry you, catch you before you fall. Finally, he's like, look, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory. And you know what Jesus did? Time and again, he just starts quoting scripture. He just starts saying God's word back to the devil. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall, not put your Lord, uh, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Mm-hmm. It's fighting temptation with God's word, and even on the cross, which is no doubt Jesus' biggest test, in the time where he's probably most tempted to say, "Forget this, <laughs> this sucks. These people don't love me. It's really hard and they're really hard to love. like, I want to go home, <laughs> right? The temptation's to the max. You know what he says on the cross? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what he's doing there? He's praying Psalm 22. Even on the cross, he's quoting scripture. He's praying the Psalms. All that is to say is that Jesus was so filled with the word of God that when you cut him, it's what came out. He was so filled with God's word um, that, yeah, when you cut him, it's what came out. He was able to navigate the minefield that's life, and this is in large part why God's word really had taken root in his life. It was really deep inside of him. It helped him, and it's going to help you too. Like, how are you going to get his word inside of you? Like, how are you going to be convinced in your inner self that God is good and he's loving and he's for you? You've got to see him, and then you need to hear it again and again and again because we are so prone to forget. And where that's going to happen is here on Wednesday nights. It's going to happen at church on Sunday. It's going to happen when you study your Bible at home. It's going to happen when you study your Bible with friends. And ultimately, it's going to happen when you surround yourself with people who don't lead you astray, but rather when you're being tempted, can speak God's word into your life and comfort you and guide you and protect you with it too. As you pick your friends, because look, we we don't get to pick our family, but we do get to pick our friends. Choose people wisely. Choose people who are like not trying to lead you astray but who love you and know how to speak God's word into your life. That's the kind of people you want to have around. You need to see him. You need to listen to him. But finally, you need to rest in him. Here's what I mean by that. In this life, you're going to face all kinds of tests and trials. You're going to be tempted hear me out. You're going to fail. Like you are going to step on a mine today if you haven't done so already. There's still plenty of time for you to do this. There's still hours left in the day for you to blow something up. (laughs) You might be coming in here a bloody mess. Even though you look pretty good. Okay. If it doesn't happen tonight, it's probably going to happen tomorrow. There's no way. There's just no way that you are going to navigate the minefield perfectly. And unscathed. and I'm not saying that to discourage you. And I don't want you to mishear me. Even though you're not going to do this perfectly, it doesn't mean that you can't start doing it well. You can't stop. It, there's, it's not an excuse not to start trying. I would love it for you to make it through this life with as little pain and as many limbs as possible. And Jesus would too. And that is why he tells us to pray this way. To look up and then to look out and then to look in and to ask God, would you lead me through the minefield? Would you lead me not into temptation? Would you lead me out of it? Would you lead me over it? Would you lead me through it? It's better to avoid these minds rather than to dance on them. But you have got to hear me say this loud and clear. This is—you are not saved because you do this perfectly. You are saved because God has navigated the minefield perfectly for you, right? We blow ourselves up left and right, and that is why God left heaven for earth, and it's why he lived a perfect life, and it's why he climbed up on a cross. It is so that he could save us, so that we would find our rest in him. It says in Hebrews, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is our salvation, and it's really what you can say back to the devil. I'm not going to do this perfectly, but I have someone who did, so leave me alone. He is good. He loves you. He is for you. And because he did this perfectly, you have the freedom to try and to fail. Look to him, listen to him, and ultimately rest in him. That's my encouragement, my good word for you all tonight.